It's hard to overestimate the importance of Daniel chapter 7. Jesus often referred to himself in the Gospels as the Son of Man. And each time he did that, he was recalling this passage in Daniel chapter 7, where we see a vision of one like a Son of Man. Jesus was saying, by calling himself the Son of Man, that's me. In one of the key moments toward the end of Jesus' life as his crucifixion approached, Matthew tells us that the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Those words too were drawn from this very passage where one like a son of man approaches the ancient of days on the clouds of heaven. So if we want to understand what Jesus said, how Jesus thought of himself, what Jesus said about himself, who Jesus is and what Jesus accomplished, we need to understand Daniel chapter 7. This was a significant chapter for him and it is a significant chapter for us. Now, Daniel chapter 7 is a little bit different than the other chapters we have encountered so far in Daniel. In some ways, it's very similar, but in some ways, it's different. It's similar in that in this chapter, we are going to encounter a vision, a dream that needs interpretation, just like we saw in chapter 2 when Nebuchadnezzar had a a dream of a four-part statue that was crushed by a stone that grew into a mountain, just like in chapter 4 when Nebuchadnezzar had a dream of a great tree that was cut down and the stump remained. Similarly, in this chapter, we're going to see a dream where uh, there are four beasts that require interpretation. But what's different about this chapter is it's not Nebuchadnezzar having a vision, it's Daniel having a vision. Daniel having a dream that requires interpretation. And this chapter is is not in chronological order like the earlier chapters of Daniel have appeared to be because we see in verse 1 that he says in the first year of Belshazzar king of Babylon well Belshazzar we met back in chapter 5 on the last day of his kingdom right when he saw the handwriting on the wall and the doom the judgment was pronounced against him and that against him in that very night Belshazzar died and his kingdom uh, passed to another, right? The, the, the Medo-Persian Empire took over the Babylonian Empire at that point. And in Daniel chapter 6, where Daniel's in the lion's den, it's no longer Babylon that is the great power on the earth. It's the Medo-Persian Empire that is now in power. So in chapter 7, we're kind of, we're rewinding a little bit back to when the Babylonian Empire was still in power. And uh, Daniel, of course, was living in that empire. Belshazzar was king. And Daniel says, it was at that time that I saw a dream. I saw visions of my, in my head as I lay in bed. 
right? And uh, Daniel tells us what he saw in his vision. Verse 2, he says, I saw my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea. Now, in Revelation chapter 21, where uh, John sees the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, John tells us that in the new creation, there was no sea. And we look at that and think, well, why would there be no sea? That doesn't sound like a good thing. We like the sea, right? We like the lake. We like the water. We like the beach. Why do we want no sea? And uh, often people will refer to this passage in Daniel chapter 7 and say, this is what's behind the comment, there was no sea. Because the sea was a terrifying place. The sea was a scary place, right? And in Daniel's vision, it's from the sea that these four beasts arise. And he describes for us these four beasts. The first one, he says, was like a lion with eagle's wings. Now, because there are four beasts, and we've already seen a vision of a statue with four parts, and we know those four parts represented four different kingdoms, we'd be on pretty firm ground guessing that these four beasts are going to represent four kingdoms or four kings. But we don't have to guess that because in verse 17, Daniel's going to be told these four beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. And the first king, just like we would guess if we had no other clues, is um, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. Now, we could guess that because he was the first king in the four-part statue in Daniel chapter 2. He was the head of gold, right? But we also have some significant clues here. For example, he says, The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar, because of his pride and arrogance, was humbled back in chapter 4, and he became like a beast. And he was living like a beast for so long that his hair became like eagle's feathers, and his nails grew out like eagle's claws, and he had the mind of a beast, he lived with the beast's, He acted like a beast. He ate like a beast. But then after a time, God restored his reason to him. Once again gave him the mind of a man. His kingdom was restored and his glory was restored. That's what Daniel's seeing in this vision. The lion represents Nebuchadnezzar. right? And it's picturing his restoration to glory. His restoration to his kingdom. As this beast is caused to stand up like a man and given the mind of a man. The second beast is in verse 5. And we're told it's like a bear. And it's raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, arise, devour much flesh. Now, this is going to be the the Medo-Persian Empire. The combination of the Medes and the Persians came together in one empire. But probably unequally balanced. Hence, the bear is tilted to one side, raised up on one side. Uh, What about the three ribs in its mouth? Well, uh, some have suggested that represents three significant conquests that the Medes and the Persians made. And that makes as much sense as anything, right? Uh, It goes along with its 
uh, being told to devour much flesh. That would be conquering other uh, you know, uh, peoples and nations and expanding their empire. And so that's the empire that came after the Babylonians. We've seen that already in the book of Daniel in, in chapter 6. The third beast is like a leopard. Verse 6 says, After this I looked, and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. Now, this one, too, is pretty easy. A leopard is a pretty fast animal, right? And if you put four wings on its back, that would imply it would be even faster. Well, you might remember that the man who most swiftly conquered virtually all the known world was Alexander the Great. He took over from his father, Philip of Macedon, when he was 20-ish years old. And within about 10 years, he had expanded the Greek Empire to enormous proportions. And then shortly after that, he died. He quickly conquered the world, and then his kingdom came to an end. And when he died, his kingdom was divided among four of his generals. And so, you have a leopard with four wings and four heads. The four heads representing the four generals, most likely, that took over after uh, his death. And again, the leopard with the wings representing how swiftly Alexander conquered the world. So, that's the Greek Empire. So, you've got the Babylonian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, the Greek Empire. That all matches what we saw with the second statue, or to me, with a four-part statue in Daniel chapter 2. Then we come to the fourth beast. And in the four-part statue in Daniel 2, the fourth uh, part, uh, we took to represent the Roman Empire, which is probably what the fourth beast here represents as well. But this beast is different. We're not told what animal this fourth beast is like. We're just told that it's terrifying. Verse 7 says, After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had iron teeth. You might remember that the fourth part of that statue was made of iron, right? And iron mixed with clay. It had iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. Back in chapter 2, We were told about that fourth kingdom. There shall be a fourth kingdom strong as iron because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. So these two visions seem to be representing the same four kingdoms. Daniel just has a little more detail to it, right? A little more description of what these kingdoms are. Are going to be like. This fourth kingdom, we're told a little bit more about it in verse 8, or excuse me, verse 7, it says that it had ten horns. Right? And verse 8 says, I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. Now, That part of the vision, the fourth beast and the ten horns and the little horn, that part is so significant that Daniel is going to ask 
for an interpretation of those things, and he's going to receive them in the second half of the chapter. But we're not going to get that far this morning, so I'm not going to try to explain uh, the the fourth kingdom very much, or the the ten horns and the little horn. We'll hopefully get to that next time in our next sermon on Daniel. We'll uh, cover the second half of Daniel chapter seven. But for now, it's just. Enough for us to know that those are there and that we're going to get an interpretation later. But looking at those uh, four beasts and those four kingdoms that they represent, what's, part of what's significant about that is, of course, the first beast represents the kingdom that Daniel is a part of while he's having the vision. Right? So that, that's not... There's no real new revelation there, right? Since it was during the days of the reign of Belshazzar, the humbling and restoration of Nebuchadnezzar had already taken place. That part of the vision, therefore, is not really prophetic. It's not, it's not about the future. But the next three parts of his vision, the next three beasts, are. They are uh, revelations of future events, future kingdoms, that Daniel had not yet encountered that God was revealing to him in that dream, just like God had revealed to Nebuchadnezzar in his dream in Daniel chapter 2. Now there are some who say Daniel cannot have known these things. Not only these things, but other things we, we encounter later in the book of Daniel. There are some who they just don't think that it was possible for Daniel to predict with any detail things that had not yet happened. And so they think the book of Daniel must have been written much later than the time of exile when Daniel lived because the only way that people could, somebody could write a book that was so accurately fulfilled would be if they wrote it after the fact, pretending like it had been written ahead of time. But here's the problem with that. That point of view assumes that either there is no God, or that if there is a God, he can't possibly reveal detailed future events to people before they happen. But we know that neither of those things is true. There is a God, and the real God is involved in his creation. He is a God who reveals himself. He is a God who is capable of communicating with his people. He knows everything because he is the eternal God. He's not bound by time like we are. And so it is by no means impossible that God could share with Nebuchadnezzar and share with Daniel what was going to happen in the future. That's the very thing that the book of Daniel claims took place, and we believe it. Because we believe in a God who can do that. So Daniel is being given a glimpse into the future. He is being told what is going to happen before it takes place. And along with this terrifying vision of these four beasts, he also has a very encouraging vision of the Ancient of Days and of one like a son of man. And of the kingdom of God. So in verse 9, he shifts from describing the four beasts that he saw to now he sees the heavenly courtroom, the heavenly throne room. He says, verse 9, as I looked, thrones were placed and the ancient of days took his seat. And this is God, of course, right? The ancient of days he's called because he's eternal. There's no one who's as 
old as him, so to speak, although old is not really the right way to put it, right? Because he's, again, not bound by time. He has no beginning. He's the Ancient of Days, and Daniel says his clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. Now this is symbolic imagery, right? And what does this symbolize? What what does the white robe symbolize? What does the white hair symbolize? Because God doesn't have hair. God doesn't even have a body. God is spirit. He does not have a body. And so what does Daniel say? He's, he's trying to describe God for us, again, with this symbolic imagery. The white clothing represents his purity, his holiness. The white hair represents his wisdom, right? With, with old age usually comes both gray hair and wisdom, right? And so his white hair represents his great wisdom as the Ancient of Days. And then his throne, he says, was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. What does that represent? That fire represents his judgment. In the book of Revelation, when we uh, see the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth, God's throne is there too. But in the new creation, there's no fire streaming forth from his throne. Instead, there's the river of the water of life. Why? Because in the new creation, God's presence is the source of eternal life. The source of all nourishment and refreshing and joy and life and peace and all those things. And that's pictured for us by this river of water of life coming from his throne. Here, the picture is one of judgment, not of life. So it's fire that is streaming forth from his throne. Fire that even makes up his throne. He's surrounded by thousands and thousands, 10,000 times 10,000, Daniel says. The court sat in judgment and the book's were opened. Again, this is a courtroom scene. God has arrived as judge, and the books are being opened, representing all that God knows about all of these kingdoms, which is all that there is to know. The record of their deeds, the record of their wickedness is recorded in these books, and according to what's written in those books, they will be judged. So verse 11 says, I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. What what, what in the world could draw your attention, Daniel, away from the ancient of days to look at something else? Well, that horn was saying crazy things. And so my attention was turned there. And he says, and as I looked, the beast, that would most likely be the fourth beast, The beast was killed, and its body destroyed, and given over to be burned with fire. And as for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. The judge arrives, the books are opened, judgment is not merely pronounced, but executed. This terrifying beast that's devouring the whole earth, It's mighty and powerful, intimidating, probably seems invincible. God shows up, the beast is dead. 
Judgment over. Judgment executed. What about the other three beasts? Well, they're not completely destroyed like the fourth beast. They're given a bit of time, right? But their dominion is taken away. They're no longer the world powers that they were, though they don't immediately cease to exist. This part of the vision reminds us that there is no earthly kingdom. No matter how great, no matter how powerful, no matter how vast, no matter how seemingly invincible, there is no earthly kingdom that is above or beyond or outside the rule and judgment of God. None. No king, no nation will be exempt from the judgment of God. None. All must give an account to him, not only individuals, but even great kingdoms. There is no power that is greater than God's power. There is no kingdom that can do whatever it wants without consequence. That's good news. Especially if you're threatened by one of those kingdoms. You feel small in the face of a terrifying beast that devours people ruthlessly, seeming without care, sometimes even without cause, just devouring people for the sake of it, perhaps. What's going to happen? Will they prevail forever? Will they get away with that forever? No. They will face the judgment of God. God will set all things right in the end of that we can be absolutely certain. Now, after Daniel sees the Ancient of Days, the great judge of the universe, pronouncing judgment against this terrible beast, he sees one more thing. Verse 13, he says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days, And was presented before him. Now who is this? Who can approach the Ancient of Days? Who would be presented before the Ancient of Days? Who could stand before the Ancient of Days? I mean, think about the prophet Isaiah. Holy man. A man God used to prophesy about the coming of the Messiah to rebuke Israel for her sins. A holy, godly man used mightily by God. When he was brought in a vision before the presence of God, he crumbled and thought he would be destroyed. Woe is me, Isaiah cried out. But here's this one like a son of man. Doesn't appear to tremble or be afraid doesn't appear to have any reason to be ashamed before the ancient of days and he's given an eternal kingdom the kingdom of God all people's nations and languages are going to serve him who is this well notice that it does not say he is 
merely a son of man. That's a phrase that's used in the Bible often to just refer to a human being. For example, in the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel is often called son of man. It just means you're a human, you're a person. Who is this one who's like a son of man? Well, notice he's not like a beast. Over and over we've been told, I saw something like a lion, like a bear, like a leopard. Four terrifying beasts. This one's not like that. He's like a human being. He's like a son of man. But if he's not just a human being, who is he? And why is he called or described as one who's like a son of man? Well, I don't know how much Daniel was able to figure out about that, but we don't have to try very hard because the New Testament makes it really clear who this is. Jesus himself makes it really clear who this is. It's him. It's Jesus. And the reason why it makes sense that it's Jesus is because Jesus is like a son of man. He became like us. He took on flesh and blood. He was born of a woman. He was born as a man. He became a servant. But he's not merely a human being because he is the eternal son of God. And when he took on flesh, he didn't stop being God. He remained fully God, but now he's also fully man. How do you describe a person like that? Well, he's like a son of man. He's not the exact same as us because he's more than us. He has our same human nature that he's taken upon himself. But he's more than us because he's not just the son of man. He's the son of God. And only one who is like a son of man and is the son of God could come so boldly before the ancient of days. Only one who's like a son of man, but also the son of God, could be a king worthy of the service, the obedience of people from every tribe and tongue and nation. Only one who is son of man and son of God could rule the kingdom of God forever, could be worthy of receiving a kingdom that has absolutely no end. What Daniel describes as an everlasting kingdom dominion and a kingdom that shall not be destroyed. We know what this is, right? This is the kingdom of God. It's the same kingdom described in chapter 2 as a stone that crushes the four other kingdoms and grows into a great mountain. We're told in that chapter that in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. In Daniel chapter 4, we're told about God's kingdom that His dominion is an everlasting dominion and His kingdom endures from generation to generation. And in Daniel 6, we're told His kingdom shall never be destroyed and His dominion shall be to the end. It's the very same kingdom here in this vision that is now given, verse 14, given to this one like a son of man. Given to Jesus. And again, that fits because when Jesus comes as the Son of Man, what does He preach? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I'm the King. I've come to rule. The kingdom of God is now near. 
That's what Daniel is seeing. Now, when does this take place? That's a little bit trickier. But in our uh, summer book discussion book that we're going to discuss in August, The Ascension uh, by Patrick Schreiner, he suggests, and I I think he has really good reasons for suggesting this, he suggests that this vision Daniel sees is a vision of the ascension of Christ. Now think about it. At what point does the Son of God appear before God like a Son of Man? He didn't always have a human body, right? Before his incarnation, before he was born of the Virgin, he didn't have a human body. He didn't have a human nature. He was spirit, just like God is spirit, right? But then he took on human flesh. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross. He rose from the dead, securing salvation for sinners, for all who repent and believe in him. And then after his resurrection... He spoke to his disciples, appeared to them for 40 days, and then he ascended into heaven. And when Acts chapter 1 describes Jesus' ascension, what does it say? It says, he was lifted up and the clouds took him from their sight. Because the disciples were looking on. Here you have one like a son of man going into the presence of the Ancient of Days coming on the clouds. And when was it that Jesus received this eternal dominion, this kingdom, this perpetual reign? Was it not when he was installed as king at God's right hand after his ascension? This is what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, where he describes how he was in the form of God, but he humbled himself, became a man, And he humbled himself even to the point of death and to the point of dying on a cross. And then Paul says, therefore, see if this doesn't sound a whole lot like what we're seeing in Daniel 7. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That sounds to me a whole lot like to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Daniel was seeing in his vision long before it happened the fruit of Jesus' incarnation, the fruit of Jesus' death, the fruit of Jesus' resurrection. He's witnessing, perhaps, the climax of his ascension, his exaltation, when he is installed in heaven at the right hand of God as the king who rules over all. Now, there are plenty of things in Daniel that are difficult for us To interpret. As I said, the timing of that event, is that a picture of the ascension or is it a later event? That's something that probably not everybody is going to agree on. But here's what we can all agree on. The ultimate question posed by this chapter is not when did this take place? That's an important question. That's not the ultimate question. The ultimate question is which kingdom 
And which king will receive your allegiance and my allegiance? There are plenty of kingdoms that vie for our allegiance. There are plenty of kings that at times demand our allegiance. But there is only one kingdom and one king that will never pass away. And this king is so much better, so much greater, so different than all those other kings. Only this king is not a mere son of man acting like a god. This one is God who became a man. This one does not demand that his subjects give their life for him, die in his place. This king does not devour his subjects in order to advance his own glory. This king laid down his life for any who would be willing to be his subjects, any who would repent, any who would trust in him, any who would bow their knee to him. This king is the only king who has secured for us eternal life. It's the only king whose kingdom will never end. It's the only kingdom who, if you throw your lot in with him, there's never going to be a day when you lose. There's never going to be a day when it all comes crumbling down. There's never going to be a day when it's all over and your dreams are vanquished and everything you invested turns out to be for naught because there's no sacrifice you can make for this king that's too great. There's no cost that you can pay for this king and this kingdom that is too great because this king is worthy of our everything and this kingdom never comes to an end. And not only that, This kingdom is not terrifying. This kingdom is not a kingdom that devours and frightens. This is a kingdom, the Bible says, is characterized by joy and righteousness and peace. And it's a kingdom whose doors are open to anyone who will come in repentance and faith and say, That's my king. Jesus is my Lord. I trust Him. Let's pray.